Well, Abraham is one of the most, if not the most, or the greatest figure of the ancient post-flood world. When you think about it, three world religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all consider him father of their faiths and therefore revere him greatly. But tonight we're going to see that as important and as faithful as he was, he was still a man. He was a man like you and like me. He was a man of faith, but he was also a man who failed. So the challenge for us tonight is, uh, the, the call and the challenge is, is not to be like Abraham, because we already are. The challenge and the call will be to learn from him. The challenge and the call is, is that we would exhibit the faith that he exhibited. Because the faith that he exhibited is saving faith that we learned tonight in Sunday school that is the alone instrument of justification. But the call and the challenge is not only to exhibit that faith, because we possess that same faith, the challenge and the call is to exhibit that same faith in the midst of famine which Abraham did not do. And the good news is, when we are more like Him than we want to be, and we fail like He failed, we have hope. We have hope just like He had hope. Our outline in the back of your bulletin, the normal place, looks like this tonight. We're going to look at the promises given and the faith established. We're going to see faith tested and promises forsaken. And then finally, we'll see promises remembered and faith revived. Children, you'll find your words in their normal place as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as is our custom before we continue. Father, would you give us ears to hear in these moments? Would you prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word? Would you grant, grant us all grace? And would you fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you this evening? Something good for you, good for your people. And I pray that you would attend to me as I do this work. And I pray these things in the name of and the forsake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, last week, if you haven't been with us, and even if you have, last week in, the, in our previous text, which was the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, uh, we saw promises given and faith established. We saw that God set His love upon Abram. Uh, we saw that He effectually called him. We saw that he promised that he would make him a great nation, that he would give him a land for that nation uh, in which that nation would dwell. That we saw him um, 
bless Abraham and, and tell him and promise him that he would make his name great. We saw that he would protect him. He made a promise to protect him, and we saw that he promised that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Abraham believed the Lord. He placed his faith in the Lord, and and he received the promises that the Lord had made and had given him, and, and his faith was exhibited in his obedience to follow the Lord. His faith was exhibited as he left his family and his friends and his home and his country and the only life he knew to do what the Lord had called him to do. God revealed himself to Abram. Abram responded, and he responded out of an assurance and a conviction of those promises that he had heard. His faith made the promises present and visible. But it wasn't merely assurance and conviction of those temporal promises. And we know that because while he established permanent altars within the land, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he continued to live in tents. He continued to live in temporary dwellings without foundations. He remained a nomad. He was a resident alien. He was a resident alien who wasn't a citizen. He didn't plant. He didn't put down roots. He lived among the people of Canaan as a foreigner. He didn't settle down because he never really fit in, because he never really belonged. And again, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he did so because not only did he have the assurance and the conviction that the Lord would take him or lead him to the promised temporal land, he also knew and had the assurance and conviction that Canaan wasn't the final destination. He knew that there was something more. It was promised, but it wasn't the complete fulfillment of the promise. It pointed to something greater. He knew that there was a complete and full and final treasure that awaited him. He knew in Peter's words, words from our sermon on Easter, that the true inheritance, his true inheritance, was being kept in heaven for him. He knew it was already, but he knew it was not yet. And it wasn't going to come till he passed into glory. But, but he obeyed and left. He obeyed and left, and he did so despite the fact that he really didn't know where he was going. He didn't know what the future held. He didn't know what was before him and how uncertain it really was. There was an unpredictability. There was, a, there, there was no complete clarity. Right? We don't find out until Genesis 13 and 15 where the land actually is. And brothers and sisters, we possess that same faith. We possess the same faith of Abraham. We, we possess that faith that elicits obedience. By God's grace, He's revealed Himself to us. He has brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life. He's removed our hearts of stone and He's given us hearts of flesh. He's given us a gift of faith. And that faith that He's given us makes the future present and the unseen visible. And it's an active faith. It responds when he speaks. And of course, he speaks through his word. Right? We don't have to be contemplating a move um, you know, to another house or to another town or to another country. We don't have to be contemplating a new job. 
or a new position. We don't have to be leaving one thing and moving to another to understand that this is very applicable to us because the application is much broader than that. The faith we possess responds in obedience to His Word. Right? We respond to the Word of God regardless of the hats that we wear or the, the circumstances that we might be experiencing, whether things are, whether things are known or whether things remain uncertain or unexpected. Right? It's the same faith regardless of wherever He might lead or the consequences that might result. Because He who promised us is faithful. So let me ask, are you trusting in God's promise? I asked these questions in Sunday school, or this question, are you trusting in God's promise to justify you? Are you trusting Him to sanctify you? Are you trusting Him to glorify you through the finished work of Christ and the power of His Spirit? Are you resting in His promise for you? Are you assured of the hope that you have in Him and Him alone? Do you possess the conviction that the things that you can't see, like His return, and like our resurrection, and our glorified bodies, and that there will be a day where there will be no more crying, and every tear will be wiped away from our eyes, there will be no more death, there will be no more mourning, there will be no more pain. Do you believe that those are just as true, though they are invisible, and yet to come? Do you have the assurance and conviction that God in Christ, Christ has gone to prepare a place for you, and that He's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through Him, and that you don't need to have the details of that journey, because He knows, and you're following Him. And does that assurance and conviction lead you to obedience? To respond in obedience to his, to his word as a husband and as a wife and as a, as a son or a daughter, as a father and as a mother, as a, as a friend, as an employer, as an employee, as a church member, as a member of your community? And do you respond in any and every circumstance that you might encounter, regardless of what's required or asked? or expected, again, whether you know where it's going to lead or not, whether you understand the consequences or are certain of them and what consequences will be produced, does your life exhibit a trust in the fact that He who has promised has spoken and is faithful? Well, as is often the case, as I'm sure many of you have stories that you could tell, immediately following, right, immediately following the moments in our lives where our, our faith is strong and our confidence in our faithfulness is growing and the victories are increasing and we erect spiritual markers to help us remember the successes that we've experienced, our journeys soon take a turn from the mountaintop to the valley below. And this is exactly what happened to Abram. 
It didn't take long before his faith was tested and the promises were forsaken. A severe famine strikes the land. It hits the land of Canaan. It hits the land of milk and honey. Pretty significant famine. And this was disconcerting, to say the least, for Abram. And while Egypt wouldn't have been necessarily off limits, right, it really, I mean, common sense says Egypt, the Nile, the fertile soil, it would have been the place to go. And where there's debate about whether he planned to go short term or more long term, it doesn't appear that his going, regardless of his length of stay, was, was actually an act of faith. In other words, he, he didn't forget the promises, but he did forsake the promises, and he turned away from them. Listen to these words of Derek Kidner. All the indications are that Abram did not stop to inquire of the Lord, but went on his own initiative, taking everything into account but God. His craven and torturous calculations are doubly revealing both of the nature, or I'm sorry, both of the natural character of his spiritual, of this spiritual giant, and of the sudden transition that can be made from the plane of faith to that of fear. And those craven and torturous calculations that he's referring to are found in verses 11 to 13. Moses writes, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, it's really interesting to me that back in verse 5, when he arrived in Shechem and he saw that the Canaanites were in the land, and, and by the way, Canaanites who probably would and, and do push back against him taking their land, but Moses doesn't mention any fear at that time. And yet here, he mentions fear, fear being predominant. And the question we have to ask is, why did, Mo, or why did uh, Abram experience fear in, in, in entering Egypt, but not in Canaan, when there were still enemies and foes in both? And Moses doesn't answer, but I have an idea that it was due to the fact that while he, in entering Egypt, he was straying from the plan and promises of God, and putting his life and the life of everybody else in danger. You see, he, he had no idea what God was about to do. He had no idea that God was going to providentially use his lack of faith and his forsaking of, his prom, of those promises for his greater purposes. He had no way of knowing. And his fear led him to make the most abhorrent of decisions. He knew how beautiful his wife Sarai was. And this, as we'll see in just a minute, was not a subjective opinion of a smitten husband. 
She was, in fact, beautiful in appearance. And he knew that when the Egyptians saw her, that they were going to want her for themselves. And in order for them to take her for themselves, they were going to have to kill him. So he told her, he said, look, tell them you're my half-sister. And technically, that was true. But the half-truth was not the whole truth, which means it was a complete lie. And he justified his decision, as we often do, by telling her that the lie would cause them to spare her life and would ultimately, or I'm sorry, spare, it would spare her life, but it would also spare his life, which would ultimately be something that she would benefit from. You see, if he was simply her husband, they would just take her, kill him, and she would be stuck. But if he was her half-brother, tradition said that they would actually go to him and barter for her, or actually seek and negotiate for her. And so in his mind, if I'm your brother, I can buy time, I'll negotiate for you, which will give me time to come up with another plan. But what he didn't take into consideration was while the princes would believe that she was beautiful in appearance, he, he thought that they would probably just keep her for themselves. They, he didn't count on the fact that they would be so awestruck that they would go to Pharaoh and, and point out how beautiful she was and, and show her to him and that he would take her without negotiation, which he did. Plan goes awry. In the end, no matter how he spun it, the result was the same. Because rather than stay in Canaan, rather than turn around and, and, and trust God to provide for them, trust God to keep them alive, why? In order to keep His promises, the promises that He had just made, in order to keep the promises of an offspring and a great nation, to keep the promises of protection in the land. I mean, Abram is violating every bit of it. And in the end, he does what Adam did. And he fails to love his wife. He violates the seventh commandment in the words of the larger catechism by failing to preserve her chastity and heart, speech, and behavior. In the words of Alan Ross, once again in Genesis, through fear and disobedience, the intimacy of the man and woman is broken. Once again, someone has taken that which God had put off limits. Unjustifiably, Abram put his wife in danger. He put her in danger by neglecting her safety and failing to protect her vulnerability. And quite honestly, he, came, he became the world's first sex trafficker. Because, you, because Pharaoh didn't kill him. Verse 16 says, For Sarai's sake he dealt with, well with Abram. 
He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Not only was he no longer a scared stranger, he was a welcomed and wealthy guest. But the wealth from that point forward was just going to be an awful reminder of what he had done. It would be an awful reminder of his betrayal, the betrayal of his wife and his violation of her trust, wealth that, that would cost him his wife and cost him his integrity, not to mention the fact that Hagar was probably one of the female servants that Pharaoh gave him. And we know where that leads. But while Abram was unfaithful, the Lord remained faithful. Due to the horrendous, horrendous nature of of trafficking his wife, the Lord determined to do what Abram didn't. And he intervened. He was the only one that could save her. And verse 17 says, but the Lord, love that, but the Lord, (laughs) but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because Sarai, because of Sarai, Abram's wife. The Lord did so not only because of Sarai, but his word of promise was on the line. He had to do something. And the affliction and the plagues have to be underscored because Pharaoh and his entire household, everyone within it was struck with this severe plague. We don't know what the plagues are, people, but you know know me, we're going to stick with what we know, what we don't know. But everybody in the house, except for Sarai, was struck down. And of course that leads... That leads Pharaoh straight to Abram. Moses doesn't say, but I'm guessing Pharaoh asked why she was unaffected. I mean, this is common sense. You're the only one not affected. Why is that? And she probably threw him under the bus, just as he deserved. So in verses 18 to 20, it says, So Pharaoh called, called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Right? Take her back. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. In other words, Abram, you've brought this on me. Had you told me the truth, had you told me that she was your wife... I would not have taken her as my wife. And that is an extreme indictment that this godless pagan is pointing out Abram's moral failure. Pharaoh seems to have more character at this moment than Abram. He wasn't, Abram, Abram wasn't a blessing to the nation. He wasn't a blessing to Egypt and to Pharaoh. He was a curse. 
Ligon Duncan put it this way, a godly man rebuked for his untruthfulness by an idolater and a pagan. Moses is telling you, when you see the godless Pharaoh rebuking Abram, Abram's faith has failed. There's no way around it. Now, there is a debate as to whether Pharaoh actually committed adultery with Sarai or not. Gordon Wenham believed he did. He wrote, we are left wondering whether Sarai just became a member of Pharaoh's harem or whether she was actually introduced to the king himself. The latter is probably implied, but the story refrains from saying it directly. The plagues were sent. That the plagues were sent seems to indicate that Pharaoh did actually commit adultery. Yet I tend to agree with Dr. Ross, who says in a royal household, it would take time for her to come before the monarch, and he reminds us to note Esther's 12-month preparation. Moreover, the statement, here is your wife, strongly suggests that she was returned unharmed as his wife. And Calvin agrees, he wrote, the serious diseases that followed sufficiently proved that the Lord remembered her, and hence we may conclude that she remained uninjured. Moreover, when Moses adds that Pharaoh treated Abram well for her sake, we conclude that she was honorably entertained by Pharaoh and was not dealt with as a harlot. All doubt is, in my judgment, Calvin says, removed because God, on behalf of his servant, interposed his mighty hand in time, lest Sarah should be Violated. But regardless, Abram stood silently before Pharaoh condemned. Rightly condemned. He had no retort. But notice, I slowed down when I read the text. Not only was his life spared, but he left with his wife and everything that Pharaoh gave him. And the question, everything that he was given for the transaction of his wife, for his wife. And it leads to the question, how could God plague Pharaoh and not Abram? And more than that, how could God plague Pharaoh and bless Abram? And the answer is, in the words of Joel Beakey, only because God did not bypass his son on Abram's behalf. God plagued his son with the curse and punishment of Abram's sin so that he could be set free. And the same is true for you and me. It is absolutely true for each and every one of us. And so that leads me to several things we need to take away from this scenario here. Uh, First of all, God's plan and promises are going to come about. Right? His plan and promises will come about. He will keep His Word despite us. Our unfaithfulness and our sins cannot thwart His plan for our lives. So he can and should be trusted. 
Secondly, we should be prepared for times of trial and tribulations, for those times of famine in our lives, because the Lord uses them to test our faith. He will seek to remove the dross and to purify it, and in the words of Peter, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, and may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we should acknowledge our weaknesses as sinners. Again, we are just like Him. And we should be wary of doing anything apart from His Word. We should be wary of doing anything on our own initiative. And without faith. And fourthly, God may or may not deliver His people from the consequences of sin. But He is able... He is able to overcome any and all of our sin and the consequences of our sin through His divine intervention should He determine to do so according to His will. Nothing is too too great for Him. Nothing is impossible for Him. Fifthly, we should never attempt to bring about something good through evil means. It's a train wreck waiting to happen. And finally, gentlemen, while I'm going to, I'm going to expound on this um, later, because Abram's going to do this exact same thing again in chapter 20. But I do want to say at this point that there is absolutely no excuse or justifiable cause for you or for me to fail to care for the most vulnerable among us, particularly to mistreat, abuse, and fail to protect our wives. Absolutely none. There's no reason for us not to cherish our marriages. We are forbidden to elicit all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions from her, and we are required to preserve her chastity in Speech and in heart and in behavior. Again, we'll spend more time there in chapter 20. But our text tonight moves on into 13. You probably thought I was done. I'm not. Verses 1 to 4. Because it's there that we actually, those were all things for us to consider and but, but here in the verse, first four verses of chapter 13, we find how we should respond, okay? Moses wrote, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, and silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first... And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Despite Abram's forsaking of the promises of God, despite his faithlessness and unfaithfulness, despite his going on his own and taking matters into his own hands, Despite his negligence and complete lack of love and protection of his wife, 
despite the contradictory actions that flew in the face of every single one of God's promises, God remained faithful. God remained true to His promises. Abram had forsaken the promises, but God had not only forgotten them, had not only not forgotten them, He had remained faithful to them. And having been confronted simultaneously with His his own sin and God's faithfulness, Adam, I'm sorry, Abram returned to the place between Bethel and Ai, back to the altar, and called on the name of the Lord. Why? To repent. To acknowledge his sin and misery. To offer, offer a sacrifice for atonement. To seek forgiveness for his folly. You see, though his faith had been weak and had faltered, it did remain, and it had been revived, and he called on the name of the Lord in worship. Despite all that he had done, despite all whom he had hurt, he returned to begin again. And so with that said, let me encourage you in this way. Again, I want to ask a question. Do you need to come to the Lord for the first time? Or do you, having succumbed to the temptations you faced in the midst of famine, need to return to the Lord? For the first time or return, do you you need to call upon the name of the Lord? Have you ever embraced the promises that have been made in Christ for those who will trust in Him? Or have you strayed from those promises that are yours in Christ? Have you forsaken them? Have you been mired in in sin and misery? Have you thought that your sins and failures are too great? Abram shows us that no one is without sin. Abram shows us that no one is beyond failure. And Abram shows us that no one is beyond forgiveness. So I would encourage you to take this opportunity tonight to call on the name of the Lord and to repent of your sin, to either come to or return to the altar of the cross where Christ laid down His life as the one and only full and final atoning sacrifice for sin. 
begin your new life in Christ or begin again as one whose life has been restored and whose faith has been revived. For he who has promised is faithful. Let's pray. Gracious Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You enable us to receive the Word with faith and love and lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Bless those who have heard Your Word preached and may the seeds sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. In the name of Christ I pray. Amen.